Hello everybody and welcome to another one in the series of Financial Wellbeing Podcasts. My name is David Lloyd. Uh, I'm a writer, I'm a broadcaster, I'm an actor. Uh, I'm a man of many talents, but I'm also uh, a friend and colleague of Chris Budd. Chris, tell us about yourself. Hello, uh, my name's Chris Budd and I'm a man of um, not quite so many talents, <laughs> but perhaps a few different ones. Um, I uh, write as well. I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book and also novels. And, and I've then... just read your second novel. Oh, bless your heart. Finally got round to reading it. And, uh, and on... we should move on quickly, should oh, we? Holiday... No, 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 I really enjoyed it. A real page turner. A real page turner. Uh, Manners from Heaven, it's called. Available on Amazon, I believe. It is. Uh, and uh, well worth the read. Thank you. Bless your heart. So what are we talking about today then, Chris? Today we're going to hear from one of the most fascinating and intelligent people that I've ever talked to. But I'm on it every week, so what's different? <laughs> we're going to talk to behavioural economist Greg Davies. What that means is he looks at how people make decisions, hence behaviour, and decisions about money, hence behavioural economist. So a simple example of this could be why the public always invest at the top of a market and sell at the bottom. Uh, now hang on a minute, I seem to remember in my dim and distant past that you've said that we should do that the other way around. It should be the other way around, absolutely, if we acted with our heads, but that is not what tends to happen. So as markets go up, what tends to happen is the general public get more confident, and then the, the, the markets go up a bit more, and they get a bit more confident, and more goes in. And just as it gets to a peak, People look at the stock market figures and think, do you know what, that's for me, I like what's happened there. So they pile in, then the market starts to go down and people react and say, do you know, I'm supposed to be a long-term investor, that's fine, I'll just sit it out. And then it goes down a bit more, I don't, this isn't what I signed up for, I don't like this. Then it goes down more, and when it gets to the bottom, they have a bit of a panic and say, this isn't what I signed up for at all, and they sell. So we, because we act with our emotions and not with our heads, people tend to invest in the stock market at the peak and get out at the bottom. So Greg will be talking more about why we do this. Yes, and how we can stop ourselves from doing this, more importantly. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> Sounds like a ridiculous way to behave, as far as I'm concerned. Do you remember last podcast, David, we had a new word from foreign languages to Hugo. describe... Hugo. Hugo. Um, I've got another one. Yeah? I found another one from Japan. Pronounced, I hope, Ikagai... I-K-I-G-A-I. Ikagai. That's my Japanese pronunciation. Very good, I think, Chris, but then again, I'm not Japanese. <laughs> we'll get tweets from somebody, I'm sure. I hope so. Uh, so, Ikagai is a Japanese concept meaning a reason for being, a bit similar to the French phrase raison d'etre. Mm -hmm. um, this I'm reading out from Wikipedia here. Right. What did we do before Wikipedia? We made stuff up. <laughs> it's been the death of a good pub argument, yes, that's I'm afraid. True. Yes. According to Japanese culture, we all have an Ikagai, and often it requires a deep and lengthy search of ourselves. Yeah, but life, that's what life is, isn't it? We're spending, we're all on a journey through life trying to find out who we are and what we are. We're not always aware of that. We don't always focus on that. But essentially, isn't that what life is? I think so. I think it is. Some more than others think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but when we come back to our, our often repeated phrase about money, work out what you want from life, spending money on that, well, actually, the search for what is important to ourselves should then relate to how we spend and how we invest our money. I would agree entirely. Excellent. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> Otherwise, that could have been awkward, couldn't it? <laughs> 
So now it's time for our regular feature, Tight Ass Tomo. This all came about, uh, for those that didn't hear the particular podcast, uh, Tomo took Chris and another work colleague uh, out for lunch, said it's my treat. Uh, he managed to steer them towards having a particular meal, which I think you would agree was actually a very it's nice meal. Yeah. But it turned out that it was one that he'd been able to get at some vast discount because of a particular app that he had on And the phone. only one on the menu that, <laughs> that, exactly, yes. that we so had. From that, uh, the notion of Titus Tomo was born. So we're always asking you to please send in your uh, ideas about how we can um, economise. Uh, Simon Reed, uh, who was actually on a previous podcast, at Simon Reed, R-E-A-D, on Twitter, he's got a great tip. He tweeted, the best money-saving thing I've done, I've cut my own hair since I was 19, saved a fortune in barber's bills. Well, I've not <laughs> met him, but I've... Um, but you do that, don't you, David? Cut, what, your cut my own hair? I'm looking at you, I'm assuming that that's the explanation. Is he, is he saved a fortune on dates and actually uh, meeting anybody? In <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious to know how he does the back. I can well, only imagine that it's it can a, only be shaved up. clippers or shavers yeah, or something yeah, like that. No, yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't cut my own hair. We've had another one in from Rebecca Cave, who's at Tax Writer Limited on Twitter. She says, "Buy all your clothes and shoes from charity shops. Save a fortune." But she then goes on to say, bit OTT and probably not suitable for underwear. <laughs> well, I would agree. I would agree with that. There's always ways in which you can save money, but I'm certainly not buying anybody else's second-hand pants. I don't know. I've heard there's a market for that sort of thing. <laughs> well, those are the seedy circles that you move in, Tomo. Wow. We have one more. Debbie Kleiner-Gaines, who works for a company called PES, HR Consultancy. She said via LinkedIn, a good tip, become a student again. When I did my master's degree, I had a student card. 25% off Yo Sushi, 10% off various high street brands. I'm not sure I should be admitting this on the podcast, but I've got one as well. How have you got a student card, Tomo? Often professional bodies that we're associated with are educational bodies. Yeah, they've got to do training, they provide exams, so they have a link to NUS and you pay, I think, £12 a year for NUS card and you get your student discount. Is that right? Yeah. So I came across an app called Too Good To Go. T-W-O, good to go. Yeah, and it's an app where a lot of restaurants are trying to get rid of their end-of-service food for cheap, and so the waste isn't there. So you can go on an app called Too Good To Go, and you don't know, quite know what you're going to get, but say for £3 you could get a full meal from reputable outlets. I think I've got one on here, and this isn't meant to be a plug, although this makes me a little... Nervous, yo sushi. I'm not sure I'd want the end of the service yo sushi, but there there are plenty of restaurants there. Great way to save money if you are having a takeaway, and a great way to save you know wasted food. So it just t- tells you the nearest one to you where you'll be able to pick up some cheap food. Exactly. Uh, Too good to go. I'm going to look into that. That sounds like a great idea. Your wife Lindsay really is a lucky lady, isn't she? Oh, I suggest. <laughs> Right, Chris, is it time for the interview now? Almost, David. Uh, I want to just warm you up for Greg Davies because I've, I've been looking into something which I think is really interesting and I want to share with you. And I want to tell you all about intrinsic motivation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Chris, tell me all about intrinsic motivation. Well, David, I'm glad you're so interested. Why we do things, i.e. motivation, can be split into two types. Extrinsic motivation means that there's a specific end goal, uh, so a financial reward or a qualification, or it could be a punishment if you don't. Whereas intrinsic motivation is the enjoyment of the task itself, so just learning because you're interested in the subject. 
both have their uses. However, if you do something because of an intrinsic motivation, then that will help you to develop and learn and more likely to do a better long-term job. So offering a reward or the threat of punishment or maybe a trophy, that's going to bring out extrinsic motivation and that's maybe their competitive side and you may get a the job well done but the individual is unlikely to learn along the way but is it possible to do something that is both intrinsic and extrinsic so it's something that is working towards a particular goal but that you actually enjoy in the process as well i'm sure Surely there is. those two things aren't mutually exclusive no um they're not there's probably a sliding scale i would imagine but you will have one will be greater than the other and obviously if you can do a job that you absolutely love and find interesting and you get a reward war that's great but you won't be doing it for the reward you'll be doing it your motivation will be because you're interested in doing something well that's interesting well let's take my my job my main job which is working as a writer I really enjoy that however the thing that motivates me to sit down and do that job on a daily basis is the knowledge that uh, once I've finished a script uh, I'll get um, some money paid into my bank account so the two things go hand in hand so absolutely fair point maybe we need both i found a really good quote on this from a marvelously named man called daniel h pink who said money can extinguish intrinsic motivation diminish performance and crush creativity encourage unethical behavior foster short-term thinking and become addictive <laughs> I thought, well, I think undeniably that's true. I wouldn't say that it's true all the time. All the, time, no, the, the important word in the beginning of that was can, isn't yes. it? And perhaps the message from this is uh, work out what you want from life, spend your money on that, the thing we keep coming back to. So when we need to make decisions about money, maybe our focus, and that's not exclusion of other aspects, but a focus on what makes us happy, on our intrinsic motivators, and maybe just not focusing so much on how much money we have and comparing ourselves with others, and which are extrinsic motivators. So motivations to your decisions, I thought that would be quite a, a good way of warming you up for Greg Davis. Greg is an expert in applied decision science. How about that for a job title on your business card? He's particularly interested in how we make decisions about money. He'll tell us a bit more about his background, but I've seen him talk many times, and he's what I would think of as a brain the size of a planet kind of guy. So let's hear my chat with Greg Davies. Bring it on. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this morning. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. That's fantastic. Well. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into this whole area. Well, like, like many of uh, the best things in life, completely by accident, I started out in economics with a, a deep interest in philosophy along the side. And I got to the point where I wanted to do my PhD and I had intended to study the philosophy of rationality because I thought that was about as ivory tower and non-practical as you could get. <laughs> so it was a, an act of pure self-indulgence, if I'm honest. And as I was preparing my PhD proposal, I stumbled across this field of behavioral economics. And it just seems such a wonderful confluence of theory and practice of economics and philosophy and maths and, and indeed psychology, which at the time I, I barely touched on uh, anywhere. And uh, it just got me really, really excited, completely swung my PhD proposal around to this new topic. And um, sort of the rest is history, as it were. So you worked with Barclays for many years, developing um, the ideas and putting some of this into practice, I presume. Indeed, I started putting it in practice before Barclays because during my PhD, I helped some guys at Warwick University in the psychology uh, department start up a consultancy that was geared at, at applying 
academic decision sciences, really right from the outset, there was a, a practical and applied side to what I was doing. Um, and then after I'd finished my PhD and uh, was sort of wondering what next, I got approached by Barclays, who said, we'd like to start this behavioral team. This was pre-financial crisis, and um, you know, there was a lot more money for budgets in banking world at that time. And, and I think we were an experiment. They, um, they thought, let's, let's give this thing a try. It sounds interesting, and we'll see where it goes. And, um, well, thank goodness they did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so perhaps you could just, just give us a top line of what we're actually talking about. What is behavior economics? Yeah, that's actually a very difficult question to answer. But broadly speaking, uh, I see behavioral economics as anything that tries to understand how and why people actually make decisions. Um, so the psychology of how people approach decisions in their life. And it takes economics into the direction of, of psychology. And it's trying to really bring the best of both of those fields together in a way that helps us to have a deeper understanding of the world and a deeper understanding of individuals. And when it comes to application, hopefully a deeper understanding of how we can help people make better decisions. So we all make decisions all the time. Uh, how do we go about making a decision? Uh, mostly on autopilot. Um, in general, the vast majority of decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis, we really don't think too deeply about it. And, you know, there's this uh, now quite popular notion of these two systems of thinking, system one and system two. And system two is when we put effort into it and we think deeply and, you know, we try to create a model or think logically and sequentially through the, the steps. Most of the time, we don't do that. We go with our gut feel. We go with a decision that feels most intuitively comfortable at the moment. That doesn't matter much if the decisions aren't very important. You know, if I'm trying to choose which coffee to buy um, at the coffee shop in the morning, it really doesn't matter that I haven't computed the perfect utility maximizing choice. But the trouble is that when it comes to decisions that are important, even when we do try to think about the right answer deliberatively, our emotional and intuitive and gut feel system of reasoning still impinges on that decision. And in, in, a, in a very real sense, every single decision we make has this tension between the right answer and the comfortable answer. And as humans, we constantly deviate away from the right answer towards what feels comfortable. We deviate away from the right answer and towards what is comfortable. And how often do those two the same thing or are they automatically opposite? No, they're not automatically opposite. And, and, and there are many situations in life where the gut feel intuitive answer is the right answer and there's no tension between these. And indeed, in certain environments, we can train our intuition to get closer to the right answer. So a key example here might be chess grandmasters who can instantly glance at, glance at a chessboard and they will you know, instantly know what, what move is, is best. They're not doing that by computation often. They're doing that by recognition and association. The problem is there's an awful lot of decisions in our life where uh, the right answer and the comfortable answer are not the same thing. And there are certain types of decisions where that's more likely to be the case, particularly decisions where we make a decision now, but the outcome's not going to be um, relevant until a long time in the future. Uh, decisions where that are highly complex, decisions where we're trading off abstract notions where we have to do probabilistic reasoning or statistical reasoning, thinking about hypothetical futures that may or may not arise. So these are all circumstances that lead us, that lead for our gut feel to often be quite distinct from the right answer. The other one is, is, is situations where 
we aren't able, like a chess player, to build up an experience of that decision. So decisions that we only make infrequently are ones that our gut feel isn't likely to have ever been trained to be the right answer. Now, all of those things I've just mentioned are strongly features of financial decisions that we might make in our lives. We're trading off complex things, risk, return. There's a complexity to it anyway. The outcomes aren't until a long time in the future. We, we only make these, some of these decisions very infrequently. So financial decision-making just happens to be one of those areas where the gap between the right answer and the comfortable answer is likely to be bigger. Great. So that's, I mean, that's an absolutely key takeaway from this, isn't it? That that anybody uh, who isn't daily dealing with finances, and frankly, many that do, uh, that when you do sit down and have to make a decision about an investment portfolio or whether to put money into pension and so forth, accept the fact that the decision you make instantly is probably not going to be the right decision in a way. I mean, maybe that's too strong a conclusion to take. No, I, I think that I think that's not, that's not too strong at all. Um, and, you know, we can we can put this in a, in a very simple framework is that what people do when making financial decisions is they are essentially making the decision that purchases for themselves emotional comfort at the cost of long term returns. I sacrifice the right answer in order to be comfortable with the decision I make. Yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is that classical finance theory would tell you that's stupid. It's irrational. We, we've told you what the right answer is. Do the right thing. But. Actually, it's not irrational. There's nothing irrational about wanting to feel comfortable with your decision or wanting to feel comfortable with your portfolio. Uh, the important thing is here is how much am I paying for that comfort? And so what we would be, should be aiming to do is not to try and get people to shut off their intuition or to shut off their emotional brains or, or any of this, is to try and ask how do we help them to be comfortable at a lower cost? How do we help them to more efficiently buy this emotional comfort that, frankly, we all as individuals tend to pay too much for? We tend to do the, do the comfortable thing in a very inefficient way. So we want to get people to make a decision they feel comfortable with, but is also a good long-term decision as well. It is better to have something that is satisfactorily good on both comfort and efficiency rather than to aim for the perfect solution and fail to meet it in a very expensive way. Okay, so let's let's try and apply this to some some real issues that people face. Somebody's coming towards retirement. They've got a pension fund. They need to make a decision. I I would guess most people have no idea what fund they've been in for the last thirty forty years. Um, they probably look at the statement a few years leading up to retirement, but haven't done prior to that. So they're not engaged with how they've been invested. And now maybe they've got a six figure sum and they need under the drawdown rules to invest this money. Yeah. For retirement income. How do they use what you've said to help them make the right sort of decisions for them? Well, the first problem that you've got there is you have an awful lot of complexity piling in on someone all at once. And complexity is a huge source of discomfort. So what people will normally do is in a very expensive way, they will step away from the decision completely and go, I just don't want to engage with it. And that is a way of buying emotional comfort. You feel comfortable about it because you've kind of stuck your head in the sand, but it is a very expensive way of doing it. Now, the question is, how, how do you overcome that? And in that particular situation you're talking about, it's remarkably difficult because if you don't have the experience, if you don't have the knowledge, then overcoming it is difficult. Now, one clear route to that is you find someone who does have the knowledge, who can help you cut through that complexity. So you go to an advisor and you pay an advisor. 
Now, here's an interesting thing, because in, viewed through this lens, you could think about what you pay an advisor as being a cheaper and more efficient way of buying emotional comfort, because what the advisor does is helps you to get more comfortable with an answer that is better. And so you could start to think of advisory fees as something that is really just a, a solution to this, this sort of trade-off. Okay. Uh, so my instinct is to continue letting you to talk about that for ages because it, it works for me. <laughs> However, <laughs> yes. what if there isn't that option? You know, how, um, or even if you do have that option, ultimately your advisor is only advising you. You still have to make a decision. It's interesting that you, you've sort of jumped into possibly one of the most difficult scenarios here because you've got a very big decision all at once and that, that's, that's quite difficult to deal with. Um, it's very easy for me to sit here and tell you all the things that people do that is inefficient ways of of getting that you know emotional comfort. They they take cash lump sums out. They sit in it for long periods of time. They they, they avoid the problem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For what you would actually do beyond going for an advisor, I mean, clearly in that situation, you need to find some guide rails somewhere. You need to find some way of approaching that decision that makes you more comfortable. And if it's not an advisor, you need to find some way of getting educated, of, of knowing kind of what that, that next step is. This, is. this is where some of the, the things like the rules of thumb become useful. So if as an industry we are able to provide people with helpful things they can cling on to that are broadly right and that people can use as, as guide rails, something ultra simple that they can reach out for that's not going to be right, but it's unlikely to be very wrong. Is a, is a very helpful thing. And as humans, we create these sort of heuristics for ourselves, these rules of thumb. We create them naturally. And some of them get us into trouble because they're sort of misaligned with what we're trying to do. Many people through their lives have developed a rule of thumb or it's been handed down to them by their parents and grandparents. And that rule of thumb is you should not spend out of capital. You should only spend out of income. And for most of your life, that's a reasonably good, if somewhat simplistic, rule to follow. When it comes to retirement, it results in some very strange things. You get a whole lot of people who are sitting on relatively large pools of capital that generate very small streams of income or are sitting on home equity that generates you know, no real income and yet are intensely reluctant to dip into the capital base that they actually own because of this hard-coded rule they've got in their heads. So that's that's a heuristic, a psychological heuristic that leads people in the wrong direction often in that point of their lives. Now, income, generating a stream of income is something that makes people feel comfortable. So having a portfolio that generates income so I don't have to dip into capital is, is actually for many people a relatively cheap way of being comfortable for my, with my portfolio. It's inefficient, but it's not that inefficient. What I find rather strange is the number of investment professionals who still seem to, to have this guide rail of, we need to invest for income rather than, than total returns. One of the things that we talk about um, in the Financial Wellbeing book is um, that financial planning is really very simple. You work out what you want from life and then you spend your money on that. <laughs> and that's an easy, trite thing to say. Yes. But actually... Simple but not easy. Yes, exactly. Working out what you want from life actually isn't, isn't that easy to do. So how do, can this decision-making theory help us with that? There are certain points in people's lives when they are naturally more likely to engage with their financial circumstances. So birth of the first child is a, is a very obvious one. People suddenly sort of start thinking about the future more. And 
if we are able at those points in time to hand people a set of these rules of thumb, then they can go, actually, I have no idea how to sort out my finances, but here are the five things that um, are sensible things to aim for. Then, you know, that, that, that's a particularly good way of doing it. And a lot of those do tend to be about objectives and they're about objectives that we sort of hand to people. So, you know, one of those objectives is about retirement income. So at the point at earlier in life, at the point where people start thinking about their pensions, we hand them these rules of thumb that may or, or may not be right. I mean, one of the ones that we, uh, we, we tend to hand out is the what percentage of income are you going to be? It's a pre-retirement. I'm spending X amount post-retirement. What percentage of that am I, am I going to be spending? And I, I often hear the number of like 70 percent. So you should plan in retirement to be spending 70 percent of your expenditure pre-retirement. Now, all the evidence tells us that actually most people don't reduce their spending in retirement very much at all. I want mine to go up for a while. Well, exactly. It often surges initially, goes down, and then particularly as healthcare costs pick up towards the end of life, it, it, it picks up again. But, you know, here's a rule of thumb that if people are spending 30 years planning around a 70% number, and the reality is when they hit retirement, they're going to struggle to reduce that below 100%, then you've spent 30 years planning for the wrong target. And so that's an, an example of a rule of thumb that may be kind of useful in the sense of better than nothing but isn't particularly well calibrated. We stopped there because we went on to other interesting things, which we're going to cover in a future podcast. Greg was so interesting, I think, on how we make decisions and how we can make better decisions. So go back to the thing I said at the beginning of the podcast, that people invest at the top of the market and get out at the bottom. That comes into what Greg was talking about, that there are right decisions and there are comfortable decisions. Yes, I was very taken with that, about how sometimes we follow that gut feeling. And as he said, if it's about the particular cup of coffee we get in the morning, we get it wrong. Actually, it doesn't really matter if we've just followed our instincts. But if we are talking about major financial decisions and we just go on a gut feeling, which in the past is certainly what I would have done. I'm very much a gut feeler. That's what I do. I tend to go on instincts a lot. But the repercussions for those big decisions are clearly far more significant than you end up with a two-pound cup of coffee that you don't really like. Yeah, and I, and I really liked the complexity point that he made, that we tend to avoid complexity, and in that way we are buying comfort, and financial decisions tend to be complex ones. Mm. So the gap between the right decision and the comfortable decision is larger with financial decisions than any other type. And I think that's a really important thing for us all to remember, that every time we make a financial decision, we're probably going to make a wrong one if we're going with our gut. That, for me, goes to show how important it is that we, we are able to take a step back and also get the right advice. Mm. I would genuinely suggest that anybody listening to that, as soon as this podcast is finished, rewind and listen to him again. I now obviously had that conversation. I've listened back to this twice and I'm still only just getting some of these points. It's really, really interesting stuff. One of the areas in which there are big gaps with financial decisions is in the area of pensions. And I think... I would speak for almost every financial planner in the country that we come across all the time people who are making poor decisions and that we have helped them to just pause, take stock, perhaps reduce the complexity by explaining something and help them to make better decisions. 
another thing that Greg suggests is putting in rules to stop us from doing things that aren't appropriate. And a very simple example of that, over the years I've seen lots of people who manage their own investment portfolios, and a bit like people who do lots of money on a horse races, they'll always tell you about the share that went up, <laughs> but don't tell about the one that went down. And they tend to, what tends to happen, and don't get me wrong, lots of, nothing wrong with DIY investing, lots of people are very good at it. But my experience has been, people tend to get really interested in the buy, in the doing the research and finding the share that's the right one to buy, but then they sit on it and don't continually look at it. Having a rule would be, if it goes up by 20%, I will sell. Irrespective of anything else, in my, I will sell, because as the old saying goes, no one ever went poor by making a profit. What tends to happen is it goes up by 30%, then it goes down by 20%, and they think, oh, well, look how much it was worth, I won't sell it yet. And they follow that that emotional decision, and then it goes down below what they paid, and they don't want to sell at a loss because that doesn't feel right. And, and they're investing by emotion, not by logical rules. So setting rules in place is a really good tip. And that might be, as Simon Reid recently was saying, making a regular monthly amount into something, save a savings plan or something. Some simple rules to stop us from making bad decisions. We look forward to hearing more from Greg in the future. It's certainly been a very thought-provoking conversation that we've had as a result of that interview there. So uh, please join us again next time for the next Financial Wellbeing Podcast. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. I'm standing alone, I'm watching you all, I'm seeing you sinking. I'm standing alone, you're weighing the gold, I'm watching you sinking.